Hi, I'm Carol W. from California, and I am a marijuana addict. I'm also an overeater, undereater, um, so many different things. But uh, somebody told me when I first got sober that you put all of your drugs of choice in front of you, and if you could only have one, which would that be? And my drug of choice was definitely marijuana. Marijuana was my best friend. I would prefer to be with marijuana than any other person. It helped me with anxiety. It helped stimulate my appetite. And it kept me from throwing up because I had so much anxiety. It uh, stimulated my appetite to help me eat um, because I could have anorexic tendencies. And, of course, once I started smoking, I could eat a box of Mystic Mints and a pizza And so it was really my best friend that got me through every difficulty that I had. It allowed me to live in a world of my own making. And, you know, I never wanted to stop until I absolutely had to stop. And um, that the why I wanted to stop, I mean, I really hate even going back there, but why I had to stop is it stopped working for me and I was just chronically depressed and honestly I wanted to kill myself Um, I didn't like anyone or anything I didn't really want to leave my house I always say a big weekend for me was spending the whole weekend plotting when I would go out and get gas to fill up my car I had quit my job three times they kept asking me back and Finally, they all agreed it was time for me to leave because I wasn't doing anything. Um, And I thought I was going to live in my home, and I had a lot of savings at the time, and I thought I would just live there until I ran out of money. And at that point in time, I figured I lived up in Northern California. I figured I'd end up being a bag lady in the, uh, the local park, and Honestly, the thing that scared me the most was being a homeless person on the street. But I saw no other option for me. I didn't really want anyone else in my life. I had no desire to really do anything. And the only thing that brought me any comfort was marijuana. But I was also caged. I was a caged bird. And I couldn't get out. And uh, back in the day, they had this Coke Enders commercial I never did Coke, excuse me, I did it once for 24 hours. But I kept wanting somebody to lock me up. But I'd such a, done such a good job. I'd moved, uh, you know, a thousand miles away from my closest relative. I had the house, the car, had my clothes right. I had my makeup. I was completely packaged on the outside so nobody would know. But on the inside, I was dead. You think the last two years I was using, I took a number of vacations. And from the outside, if you saw the pictures and the places of where I went, it would look like I was living the high life, but the truth of the matter was everywhere I went, there I was. And I was depressed and I was unhappy and um, I could never find any peace of mind. I had seen, I'd grown up in a family without any drugs or alcohol in it. And I could never figure out how the rest of my family did it, which brought even more shame to me. Um, But I knew there was another way. I just didn't know how to get there from where I was. And um, I always say eventually 
I went into this meeting. It was actually an NA meeting um, because at the time they didn't have uh, MA or it wasn't very active. And I went in and it was this, I say it was like a large outhouse. It was like a six by six room uh, down in Sausalito. And it was down by the boat docks. And I went in there with my business suit and skirt and high heels down to this meeting and I'm having to walk across rocks and mud to get there and I went in and sat down and most of the people there looked like they lived down by the, the, the boat docks and uh, this woman came in and she kind of came in late and she told her story and she was sobbing on the way down to this meeting her husband had asked her for a divorce and she was up there sharing with the group which was like six or seven people her story and in my head I'm screaming don't tell them they're gonna like think less of you that he has rejected you just keep it to yourself these are the thoughts going on in my head but when I looked around the room I saw all the other people were leaning in and they had so much compassion and love for this woman and I looked up and I saw this woman she was just sobbing and she she was so raw, and I realized it was the first time in my life that I had seen an, a real authentic emotion of somebody just letting go and letting it all out and being so beautifully received, and that hooked me. I wanted what she had. I wanted what was in those rooms, and I wanted to come back. And, you know, I came from kind of a, a British upbringing family where, you know, even when my father was died, he died when I was like 19, I think I saw a couple of tears shed, the kind that you wipe away from your eyes. And I remember when he was announced that he had cancer and I, we got in the car and I just started sobbing and my family was trying to get me to stop crying. My whole life I had wanted to be who I was, which was a very emotional person, but I never really fit in with what else was going on in my family. So I was always trying to contain what was going on with me. I felt so much shame for the emotions that I had. And I spent the next years until I got sober at 35 figuring out how to be a chameleon in order to fit into environments. What did I have to present to be acceptable and not create problems from the people around me. Whatever I thought you needed, I had found a way to reshape myself to be that acceptable person. But in the process, I had completely lost who I was. And I felt like a hollow, depressed, defective human being. I thought everybody else had a rule book for how to live. And they'd issued it to everybody but me. And they thought it was a big joke. And everybody was sitting around watching me trip and fall. And uh, I was trying so hard to look good in the process. And when I found the 12-step programs, I got sober in um, 1990. And I had gone to an MA meeting. And uh, people hadn't been sober long enough. So I went to... Um, AA, because I knew if anybody offered me a joint, I was out. Um, but I just kept going to meetings and listening, and I would sit in the back, 
And people would say things, and I would go, I felt that too. And I, oh, I had, I felt that way too. Oh, that happened to me, and I felt that way. Things that I didn't know I had felt or were acceptable or the correct way to be programmed as a human being, I had heard everywhere in the room. And I was hooked. I just kept going back. And my sponsor had asked me to call her every day. And she, she always had the strangest things to say. Like one day I would be telling her something that happened. And she said to me, oh, that must have made you feel really bad. And I was like, no, no, it didn't make me feel bad because in my mind that would have made me weak or broken. And she said, oh, that, that would have made me feel bad. And I'd go away and I'd think about it and I'd go, well, yeah, maybe I did feel bad. Of course, I wouldn't tell her because I was still trying to present a good image. But I found these, they were like... Um, posters that were like emojis on them and underneath them it had all the different emotions anger sadness disgust um and i would get up in the morning and i had these plastered on my refrigerator door and i would go down and examine those posters to try and figure out what was i feeling and to try and put a name to it and um that was kind of the beginning for me. I, you know, the sponsor that I had, I, I chose her because she was going through bankruptcy at the time. And my greatest fear was, um, you know, being a, a, a street person. And I couldn't figure out how she was going through bankruptcy, losing her business. It was a kite store in Sausalito. And um, I would go over to her store every day. We would read the big book for an hour or two. And I fell in love with the big book. I learned how to go through really bad times and to let people in and what it felt like to be vulnerable, what it felt like to be loved, what it felt like to have intimacy, what it felt like to be transparent and I got all of that through working the steps. Um, I'll never forget the, the first fourth step that I did. Um, everything that I said was practically fear-based. And I was like, well, if you were afraid, you'd do that too. And my whole thought was that if you're a tiger backed in a corner and people are coming at you, you're going to do absolutely anything you need to do to take care of yourself. And um, she was so kind and compassionate over everything that I told her. And she was so soothing. And I was so shocked by that. And I had never told my entire life to one person. I may have broken it down into small chunks to some people, but I would never have told anybody everything they would have too much stuff against me. I'll never forget after I, I did my um, first, fourth, fifth step. I, and by the way, I think my fourth step was like 15 or 18 hours. She just sat with me until we finished it. And after that, and I remember my, um, after my fifth step, 
which for those of you who don't know, a fourth step is an inventory. And it's an inventory you make of all your resentments that you have. And basically what I would say is when you get sober, the hardest part about staying sober is that I kept getting like these video flashbacks of humiliating, shameful experiences. And it's, it's living hell to try and stay sober with those videos constantly being replayed in my life. So to put all of that out, it, you know, it's enough to make me want to throw up is all I can say. But I, I did it because I wanted, I couldn't stand not to be sober anymore. And I did it. And afterward, um, the, fifth, the fourth step is when you write it. The fifth step is when you share it with somebody. And after that, I think, I don't know if I didn't call her for two weeks after that because I still had so much shame in um, having shared that with her. And the first time I called her, she said to me, I know why you haven't called me. She said, you're really ashamed after having shared that with me, she said, and I understand, it's okay, I still love you. In fact, I love you more. And that was something I didn't really understand until I started sponsoring people with my, myself. I was going to say, I don't think I have ever listened to a fifth step from a sponsee and not fallen more deeply in love with her. Because I think the reason is, number one, that somebody would trust me enough to share that with me. Second of all, I hear all the stuff she's been through in her life. And my heart goes out to all the pain and suffering she has has gone through. And I see how her uh, behaviors today are... um, based in all of these situations. And then what I see as you work the steps, I see when you start finding new ways of dealing with old situations, how people change almost instantaneously sometimes before your eyes. And it's like giving birth. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I think I was afraid of the fourth step, but today I do them anytime I'm feeling uncomfortable because I know the relief on the other side and I want to know what's blocking me from joy and freedom. My sponsor always used to say to me, how much freedom do you want? And I want you to know, I want so much freedom. That's why I got stoned before, only before I was checking out of reality. And um, when I learned to tell the truth, and I learned to ask for help, and I learned to trust God, everything in my life started changing. And For me, getting sober, I always say that pot, I was was so shut down. And as I got more and more sober, I would have times that I would just burst out crying. I would have times where I would just be shaking. And I didn't know what any of these emotions were even attached to. I would have depression. 
And what my therapist who was in the program at the time told me is, Carol, when you hold all that stuff inside and you don't express it, it stores up. And you're having to keep adding layer and layer and layer to try and hold it down. And when you stop holding it down, all the stuff that you stored just starts coming up. And he said, when you're putting that much energy into holding down all the bad stuff, he said, you can't really experience joy until you let the bad stuff out, all that emotions that you're holding in. You have to let them out to get to the joy. So anytime I'm feeling something I don't like, (laughs) I'll either do some writing on it and call my sponsor and call other people in the program and try and experience it and let it out in order to move forward. And I remember, you know, uh, as I said, I think my first fourth step, everything was about fear and about not trusting God. Well, I, I, I mean, I knew God was out there. I thought he had a lot bigger stuff to work on than, you know, my little piddly daily stuff. And what I was able to see is that it was really arrogant of me to think that God would handle a flower and a bee and the ocean and a blade of grass, but that God's life force was also not going through me. And so I had to become more humble in realizing I was like everybody else. And humility was explained to me is from the earth, you know, humble. I am just like everything else on earth. I'm one of. And so when I got, uh, after going through my fourth and fifth step, there was the sixth and seventh where the sixth was being entirely willing to have all my defects of characters removed. And what happened for me is after doing this inventory, I could start to see what my patterns were. Like at one time going through the steps, um, it was withholding. And then the next time, it was like skewing my anger at people. And then the next time, it was shunning people, pretending they didn't exist. So I had all these ways to protect myself and these quote-unquote mechanisms for dealing with situations that I just kept turning to God and I'd see myself doing whatever these characteristics were that I just uncovered in my uh, fourth and fifth step. And my sixth step was I couldn't bear to do it this way anymore. I couldn't bear to do it anymore. And the seventh step was humbly ask God to remove it. Well, for me, it was learning to just keep my mouth shut. And I would go, in my head, I might say, oh, God, help me. Or I might just go, oh, here it is again. And I would kind of sit and instead of reacting, I would breathe in and pause. And then things that were not from my head would come out of my mouth. I started having ways of handling situations that I didn't, who was that? You know, when I'm not feeling defensive, when I learned to say the truth, things started changing. And I have a very blunt personality. So, you know, over time, and I'm saying decade, um, 
I came to the point where I could start being kinder and kinder with my bluntness to start thinking more and more about um, what it would be to be a loving person in how I showed up in a situation and um, how I could translate that to every minute of my life. Um, my eighth step was making a list of things that I needed to do to get rid of those videotapes in my head. You know, you can make it sound like it's for the other person, but it's really all about me. I cannot stay sober and live life happy, joyous, and free unless I'm able to dispel those haunting images and thoughts from my mind. And what I found the best way to do that is to face the other person or the situation and come clean, you know, from the bottom of my heart. I'm really sorry about the way I showed up. I didn't realize how immature I was being and I was scared. And this is how I handled the situation. And if I could do it over today, I would. You know, is there anything I can do? You want to tell me something, anything I can do in order to try and make this right? And um, I was so pleasantly surprised with most of them. And then I remember my sister, I, I went to her and make amends. And all the things I went to make amends with her weren't even, she didn't even remember them. But she had a couple other things that did really hurt her. And she shared them with me. And frankly, I didn't remember any of them. But I was able to hear her and receive her and to make some living amends to her about those things, you know. And that's the ninth step is making those. Most of mine, a lot of mine, were living amends for things like with my mother and my family. And um, the tenth step, the so ninth steps amends. Tenth step was when I learned <laughs> that if I wanted to stay happy, joyous, and free. I needed to keep cleaning house on a daily basis so that I had to learn when I was being dishonest to speak up immediately the moment I realized it. I had to realize when I was uncomfortable in a situation to go, I'm really feeling uncomfortable here and I don't even know why, or I'm feeling uncomfortable and I need to talk about it, but it's really hard for me. I had to start learning how to live in the moment. You know, when I first got sober, I was processing feelings, emotions from 20 years ago. And the longer I stayed sober, the more current my awareness of my emotions and reactions came to now, it's pretty much in the moment. I'm not going to say never not in the moment, but pretty much most of the time in the moment, I'm aware of what's going on and I can speak a, speak the truth. And, uh, Step 11, I've really cultivated a, a closer relationship with my higher power. You know, it's, my higher power has evolved over my sobriety. Um, and I think a couple of major moments in time, one was when I went to the, the body exhibit that they had at the local museum here in L.A., and I saw a body of just veins and arteries, one of just bones, one of just um, uh, tendons, um, looking at the organs. And they had one of a nine-month um, pregnant woman. 
and they had her belly open and, and you could see the, the child in her belly. And they had another one of, um, you know, a fetus that like two weeks and then they showed it every week or some frying frame up until it was um, six weeks old. And I came out of that exhibit going, how does a body even stand up? Like, what gets a body to stand up? And whoever came up with all these arteries and tendons and, like, the brain, and you see how completely dead these material objects are. And I came with clarity that the spirit is really what what creates the life in the body and that the intelligence that created that body that comes from that spirit or from that source of all the universe, there is one source that somehow or other is expanding throughout the universe at all times and everything seems to have a rhythm, whether it be the um, earth revolving around the sun or the tide or the moon or the seasons or the flowers and the butterflies. Everything has patterns that it goes through. And the more I examine it, the beauty of those is so immense that there is not a way that I could possibly live without being in awe and gratitude of the gift that I've been given to be a part of this and to witness all of this around me and to realize that I was brought here at some particular moment in time um, to give the best of me to the world around me. And for me, the way that I have gotten the greatest fulfillment, and I think we're all here for a different purpose, because if we were all doing the same thing, we'd be jammed up. So, but the greatest purpose for me has been in sponsoring women. I mean, I don't have children, but the joy of bringing these women in and listening to them and loving them and supporting them through their growth process is very similar to that that one would see in a fetus or a butterfly. And to feel so much love is inspiring. I used to be afraid to love people because I thought if I loved them and they left me, I would be the loser in this situation. And what I've come to understand is the one that loves the most wins. Does not matter if it's returned or if it's appreciated. Am I winning by loving the most? And that doesn't mean codependence smothering somebody. It means that open-hearted joy of being with or available or growing with another person. You know, early on, I remember going to this meeting and I heard the speaker say, if he could answer four questions, he would pretty much know he was okay being sober. And the first one is, 
do you have a sobriety date? And that is that first moment of honesty that we all have. Nobody else really knows if we're sober or not, but we know it. And my experiences in watching other people, if we're not honest with ourselves about what that sobriety date is, we really won't be able to stay sober and we won't really be able to be honest about anything else. So I encourage you, let that be your first step of honesty yourself, even if you need to keep changing it. Hold on to that honesty. The second thing they asked is, can I say who my sponsor is? And yes, I can say who my sponsor is, and my sponsor can tell me who her sponsor is. The third is, what step am I on? And for me right now, I work at 10, 11, 12 daily. A 10 step is a daily inventory. I have another uh, partner, and we do a live 10 step every day. Um, well, I shouldn't say every day. We probably miss 10 days out of the year. And um, uh, 11th step is my connection with God, which I do daily. And 12th step is I make myself available to sponsees. And the last question was, um, what's your home group? And my home group is Tuesday Night Marijuana Anonymous in Culver City. And uh, I just want to stop. I know I've got 30 seconds and say, at 24 years of sobriety, I found MA. And I was at home for the first time. I always felt like a bit of a fraud in AA. I am an alcoholic, but my drug of choice is pot. And I love Marijuana Anonymous. And I hope that everybody finds here what I found. Thank you so much.